You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from a special guest speaker. I don't think, y'all don't need 300 days of this. You can give like 20 days of sun to Chicago. We're struggling under the gray where I am. Or you can at least host us. You, sh- you all should at least adopt the church from Chicago <laughs> and just bring us in for a month. And maybe you guys should go experience the rain. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm going through it. I, I-, I have a sermon. But like I was out, it was 40 degrees and raining. And-, and I stayed outside for an hour and a half, watched my daughter play soccer. And we just played through it. And I don't think you experience this kind of stuff in California. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. I think that I was told that you all are doing life after Easter. Um, and that's the sermon series that you're all on. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go all the way to the end and preach about the book of Revelation. So the very end of the story. And that's far enough after Easter. So I think that will keep us on our theme. It's strange to say it this way, especially since I'm here tasked with the, the job of delivering the word of God to you all. But I thought that I would have like settled into Christianity better by now. Don't get me wrong, right? Like, I'm on Team Jesus, right? He invited the right guy, right? We're not going to go on another, on, another, on, another, on another trip here. The scriptures of the Old and New Testament still make demands upon me. They compel my allegiance and my imagination. But I, I, I must be honest when I say that I thought this part of the Christian story would be easier. When I used to tell my conversion story, I put the turning point of my Christian life at the tender age of 21, during Christmas break, when I had a profound encounter with God, and I came back to my college campus a changed person. A little while later, I met the woman who would become my wife. I knew that she would marry me before she knew that she would, but she's here and she said yes, so that's great. And a few years later, at the tender ages of 25 and 24, we were married. And I kind of thought I had made all the major decisions of my life. I decided about God. I found someone crazy enough to marry me. I was in seminary, and I thought that I would become a pastor and serve at some church for 50 years. And actually, that didn't happen. I'm not a pastor. And I had a distinctive memory. Uh, maybe this is the arrogance of youth. I, it was before my wedding, and I thought to myself, you know, my mom did a pretty good job. You know, I'm married, I'm, you know, I'm a Christian, this is great. And I kind of thought, I'll take it from here. Like, thanks, Mom, I got it, and I'll take it from here. But that conversion story was over 20 years ago. And a lot of life has happened since then, after Easter, after this moment with God. And to be honest, some of the most difficult parts of my life have involved precisely the Christian bits of it. I've been part of a church that split. Two different churches have imploded while I was on the staff. Maybe I'm the problem. <laughs> Maybe I'm the wrong person speaking to you all today, but that happened, right? And early on when I transitioned into being an academic, I lost out on some job opportunities. Some jobs wouldn't hire, some universities wouldn't hire me because they said I was too liberal because I spoke about racism and injustice and misogyny. We don't want none of that stuff. And other schools wouldn't hire me because I had the audacity to believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament still demanded my allegiance. So I thought to myself at some point, does anybody like Christians like me? 
And I've lived through the rise and fall of many well-known Christian leaders who they told me to listen to when I was in my 20s and 30s. They were the ones who were headlining all of the major conferences. These are the books we're told to buy. And most of them, or many of them, resigned or fell into scandal. And I can only say it the way that I feel it. If I look around in the church and in the world, it seems like racism and misogyny are still stalking log segments of the Republic. And that even here in the church, many people believe that the problem isn't the racism or the sexism itself, but people like me who talk about it. We're the ones stirring up division. But it gets even more complicated than that. Some of my friends who believe that racism is a problem believe that the solution is to toss us out the Bible and radically revise Christianity as if justice and holiness and righteousness weren't friends in the Bible and part of the character of the same God. I just thought that by now, the church will be better and the world will be better. Am I the only one here? No. Oh, good, good. Because this is the key, key point in the sermon. You have to, to accept the premise. Okay, it's good. <laughs> but much to my surprise, I've discovered what should be obvious had I attended to the depiction of reality in the text of the New Testament and the Old Testament. The Bible tells us that the world, including the church that's within it, is profoundly broken and in need of repair. In our generation, for all of its wisdom and ingenuity, has come to find out like those who preceded us, we have failed to create the utopia politically or culturally. When we're young, once we're in charge, we'll fix things, right? And now we've gotten a little bit of years behind us. It's like this world is remarkably resistant to fixing. And unless you're living under a rock, you cannot help but feel a sense of uncertainty awaiting the church and the country. Like, I don't know what's coming next, but it doesn't seem to be good. Now, in that place of an uncertain future, we bump up against the Christians to whom John wrote the book of Revelation around the year 95 AD during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. When John writes his letter, or his apocalypse, we're about 60 years after Easter. And many of the early leaders of the movement, the Christian movement, have met an untimely end. James is dead. Peter is dead. Paul is dead. Most of the 12 apostles are dead. But John lingers. What does it look like then to live as a Christian after the heady days of the beginning of the movement, when the spirit fell upon Pentecost and the church exploded, only to be followed by the slow trickle of the death and loss of your closest friends and the compromise of once flourishing churches? What happens after the initial joy of conversion fades we're left with the complicated reality of the after times. What comes next? I, I sometimes wonder what John must have felt like on Pentecost, where 5,000 people converted in one day. He must have thought, we're going to convert the whole world. And he hadn't yet experienced his first church split or the Jew-Gentile 
controversy break out. He hadn't met Paul, who we love him, but he's a tough hang, right? All of that stuff hadn't occurred yet. Despite what you may have heard of John and the early Christians during this period, the 60 years after Jesus, after the martyrdom of so many people, there was not actually an organized persecution of Christians. They weren't hunting them down for the most part. But in a thousand ways, Christianity just kind of annoyed the empire. It kind of bumped up against the values of the empire. I'll give you, I'll give you just a few examples. Let's say for ex- most of the um, businesses and guilds in Rome had a patron god. So let's say, for example, you're part of the shipping industry. You would give your um, offerings to Poseidon. And so what you would do is you'd give the money to Poseidon. In exchange, Poseidon would bless you with safe seas and a miraculous catch of fish. But you, crazy Christian that you are, get converted and now you love Jesus, right? And you say, there's only one true God. I'm not giving my money to Poseidon anymore. What happens the first time one of your fellow business people have a bad voyage? They don't catch enough fish. Why didn't we get as much money as we did? It's because of the Christian who didn't give the offering. And all of a sudden, you become the kind of person they don't want to trade and do business with because you have lost the favor of the gods. And all of a sudden then, becoming a Christian has impacted your money. I'll give you another one. It was common um, in the Roman Empire to pay homage and to worship the emperor as a god. One of the names that was given to Caesar Augustus was son of God, lord and savior and king of kings. But you're sitting in church in Corinth or Rome one day and you hear a sermon. And the pastor convinces you that Jesus is the son of God and he's the king of kings and lord of lords and savior of the world. And so you decide that you're no longer going to worship the emperor. And when everyone at the dinner party raises their glasses to Caesar, son of God and savior, you hold your glass low in your hand. They start to ask, what's their problem? Are they not patriotic? Do they not love the empire? And all of a sudden, you're no longer invited to the dinner parties. And you're seen not just as unpatriotic, but dangerous. So Christianity then has impacted their jobs after their conversion and their social standing in the community after their conversion. And in a thousand ways we don't have to go into right now, the Christians were just weird. (laughs) And it's a small step from being seen as weird to being dangerous. In other words, The Christians to whom John wrote were not a group of middle-class Christians looking for something to fill a God-shaped hole in their lives. These are people who encountered the living God, got converted, and found their lives materially worse because they were Christians. So what do you do? You ever had this problem? Being a Christian is sometimes just hard. And sometimes people just walk away. And I've seen many Christians who do this. And part of it is our own fault. We as Christians have hurt and wounded people. We've not done a good job of being witness to the king and kingdom whom we supposedly represent. Others that just come by their doubts honestly, running into enigmas and doubts so they can't seem to overcome. What do you do? And here's the thing. Best as we can tell, 
John does not see the solution to a plague to Christians and an immediate change of circumstance. In other words, John can't say to the Christians, don't worry, your blessing is around the corner. Growing up, I used to wonder like what neighborhood they live in because I kept turning corners and never got to the blessing. Anyways, <laughs> kind of like I'm at, I'm at the same spot. Okay. He didn't say that, right? He didn't say, don't worry, Christians, it's rough now. Any moment now, things are going to get better. He doesn't even have a new ministry strategy. He doesn't say, you know what the problem is? The music. We'll fix the music. We'll fix the greeters and we'll get better coffee and then the church will explode. He doesn't have a technique. He doesn't have a strategy that the church can deploy to make it easier to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, John sees on the horizon more suffering. That's what he sees. He's at the end of his life. Most of his friends and early leaders are dead. And he thinks that in the future, it would be harder to be a Christian. So what do you say to Christians who are going through a difficult season because they are Christian and an immediate change is not on the offering? In the time that I have left, I want to look at two scenes from this book that he writes, its opening declaration and its vision of history that I think can give us some guidance on what to do as a church in this moment. The first one should be on your screen. It's from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. My, my, my eyes are good enough, I can, actually, I can actually see this. You have good font here. Okay. <laughs> the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything that he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to the one who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve as God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. Even so, let it be. Amen. First part, first movement. It's interestingly enough, this may be a disappointment to you, but John doesn't actually come up with an answer. John doesn't say, I've had a meeting with the board of elders and we have a, a, a fresh idea on how we're going to fix your problems. John opens his letter by saying it is a revelation of Jesus Christ that comes from God. John rests his authority in the hope for his beleaguered congregation on hearing from God. Now what John says here is not actually about the whole of the New Testament, it's about just his letter. But I think it's fair to say that in various ways, the New and the Old Testament makes the claim that God speaks through humans to his people. Now, what I'm advocating for here is not an easy kind of superficial, the Bible says it, therefore I believe it. But to say that we as Christians believe in a God 
who speaks through his people in a particular time, in a particular way, in a particular culture, that nonetheless leaps the gap and comes to us. We serve a God who is big enough to speak to a particular people at a particular time, but transcend that time and speak a universal word to all humanity. In other words, belief in the inspiration and the authority of scripture is not an affirmation of human beings. It's a statement about a trust in the power of God. Our God is not limited, limited by time and culture. He can speak to all people and individual people at the same time. What John then had to offer at bottom for his congregation was not his own wisdom, but a wisdom from Jesus, which has its origins in the Father. Now, I don't believe that as a Christian, you can function unless you get an apocalypse. In other words, where should I park? I don't know. I need Jesus to show up and tell me. That's not what I'm saying. My claim is much smaller. That I'm very suspicious of a Christianity that says, trust me, and set his word aside because we have come of age, because we know the way. So and you, I might get this wrong. I might read this text wrong. I may give you a poor application of this text. But if my wrongness arises from trying to hear the voice of God and obey it, then there's a path home. When Christianity is set adrift, guided only by human wisdom and the social consensus of rich nation states, then there is no path home. Then the colonizers ride again, right? So because for a long time, there was a consensus in the culture about what society said black people were. And black people said, the black church said, we know what God says about us in his word, we disagree. We were able to overcome social consensus because we appealed to a higher power. My claim then is that returning to God's self-revelation is a path to finding yourself again and again. So this might be relatively simple, the first thing that you do. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Strive with all of your might to hear the word that God speaks to the churches. Second movement, second movement. I've heard a lot of sermons on the book of Revelation that begins in chapter two about each of the messages to the seven churches and they kind of apply it that way. But what I want to attend to in my time is actually the description of God in the introduction that we just read. The first thing that, they, that he, God is referred to as the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Now for those of you who are about to come from the book of Exodus, in the book of Exodus, Moses is, is meandering around and he sees the bush that is burning. And he goes over to the bush that is burning, and in that burning bush, he encounters the living God, and he asks God his name. And the name that God gives is I am. And so here in Revelation, when it says the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come, it is an expansion of the divine name that God gave to Moses during the Exodus. Now, why might John address his people using the divine name that first appeared in Exodus. I'll tell you why, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> because the people in John's day do not know what's going to come next. They're in a situation for which there is no hope of rescue and all seems doomed. But here's the thing, this isn't the first time the people of God were stuck and there was no way out. And the last time the people of God were stuck in slavery and no way out, God appeared and rescued them. 
So by the evocation of the divine name in Exodus, he's reminding them of his character. That although you might be experiencing unprecedented circumstances, they're not unprecedented to God. That God has a history or a resume or a long profile of saving people who seem hopeless. Before, before, right before I stood up here um, in the last service, Gare asked me, what should I tell them about you? And the whole point of that is, if my resume is sufficient, you might actually listen to me, right? It's like, why should I listen to the guy who's holding the microphone? He works at Wheaton College. That sounds good. Use that. You might be tempted to ask yourself, well, what is God's resume? When God wants to remind his people over and over and over again in the Bible about who he is, he's going to like drop the stuff that he did. What does he say? He actually says two things over and over again. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, and I made the heavens and the earth. God is creator and redeemer. It's the foundation for, therefore, you trust me. So here, John reminds his people that God has been in this situation before, and he proved himself faithful in the past, who proved himself faithful again. John also refers to the sevenfold spirit, and that's a little bit more of a, a hazy illusion. But for those of you who may have been at church on a Christmas Sunday or during the season of Advent, y'all do Advent here? Okay, I know you're not super liturgic, but we at least heard the word Advent. It's, okay, good. <laughs> Advent. During the season of Advent, there's often a reading from Isaiah 11, and it's often seen as a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And in that passage, it says the spirit of the Lord rests upon him. You read this before? The spirit of wisdom and counsel. That one. Okay. The, that description of the spirit, wisdom, counsel, understanding, might, and the fear of the Lord, was the Holy Spirit that came upon the Messiah. So here, the sevenfold spirit is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 11. Why is Isaiah 11 important? I'm glad you asked. I will tell you. <laughs> Isaiah 11 is also in a place where the nation of Israel seemed hopeless. The line of David seemed to have come to an end and the people were going to be destroyed and the prophet says something very important. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. In other words, the tree of Jesse had been torn down and the story seemed to be over and there was nothing but a little stump. But a shoot's going to come up. Who's the Messiah? So even the description of the spirit refers to the time when the spirit fell upon the king when all seemed hopeless. He's describing God as the God who comes, there's no place forward, as, or so it seems. The last one he uses here is the Jesus Christ, whom he calls the faithful witness, the one who freed us from our sins by his blood. Faithful witness. Jesus as the one who never lied to us about God always told us the truth and loved us. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here in probably the most explicitly Trinitarian passage in the entirety of the New Testament is on full display to a people who are traumatized. I think the collective effect of this is to call the people to remember the God to whom we serve. Life is long and it's complicated. We're beset by a thousand distractions. And our issues can seem really, really large when we shrink down God. But a big vision of God changes our perception of our problems. 
Maybe our problem, and, and I understand, like, trust me, I'm the, I, I, I will give you a practical sermon if you invite me back. I'll give you five steps to do something. It'll be fine, right? That'll be fine. I'll do it. But sometimes the problem isn't that we need practical solutions. We actually need a bigger vision of God. And so two of people who don't know what to do, the first thing that John says, remember the God that you serve. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who's worshiped forever, where without end. This brings me to my third and final movement. John says to the people who don't know what to do, you need a revelation, you need a word from God. Your hope is in his wisdom, not your own. What you really need when things are difficult is to remember the vision of the God that you serve, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in his Trinitarian glory, who's worthy of all worship. Last thing I want to say, we have to remember the role that God plays in the human story. Brings to my second reading, and I won't take as long on this one. It's Revelation 5, 1 to 5, and it should be up there. There we go. John says this, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven on earth was, or under the earth would open the scroll or even look inside it. So I wept and I wept because no one who was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and his seven seals. John sees a vision. In this vision, there is a throne with the scroll sealed. In this scroll in the, in, in the hand of the person on the throne represents all human history. Everything that's going to take place from now until the end of time. And the question that John poses is who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is in charge of human history? Who has the power to bend the unruly hearts of men and women to their proper end? Who knows what's going to happen? There's, arena, there's an arena in every area of the human enterprise whose job it is to predict what's going to happen next. The stock market, the sport. I, I wish that I knew that the Lakers, sorry, can I, can I be a Lakers fan here? I'm sorry. Sorry, Warriors fans. I wish that I could just know that LeBron's going to win the fifth championship in the Lakers. I could just celebrate. But no, I have to grunt through every single game. I wish, I wish that I knew what was going to happen in the stock market or relationship. There is an opportunity to make money by promising people you can tell them the future. Now, one thing that you all have, at least when I was walking around downtown the other day, that we don't have in the south side of Chicago is tarot readers. And, that, and you can just go by there. They, they will tell you what's going to happen. And apparently, we want to know. Well, the business wouldn't be there. So like, I was there yesterday. I'm not judging you. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying this. That's what I saw. So we're tempted then to follow whoever would tell us comfortable lies about the future. We don't know. War breaks out seemingly unexpectedly. Racial injustice waxes and wanes seemingly randomly. And it's not just a national upheaval. How many times have you run up against your own personal apocalypse? with your carefully devised plans that you had for your life. You knew what was going to happen next, and the whole thing fell apart. 
I want to put on something in this story before I get to the solution. This is really interesting because John, in the vision, is in heaven. He's in the throne room of God, and someone, God has the, the scroll in his hand, and John goes looking for someone who can help. He's like, who can help me? And John then goes and looks around for someone. Because what can happen is the trauma can shrink our field of vision so we cannot see the signs of God all around us. John could have just turned to God, but he was so afraid of the future that God, as the first answer to the question, was pushed to the side. Trauma can cause us to relitigate our past. You know, you, 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 you come to church and, and you've experienced everything that the world has to offer and you find that it is inadequate. And then you experience God and you taste and see that God is good. And you become a Christian for a little bit. And then a problem comes. You convince yourself that that experience of God that you had wasn't real, even though it was. And that the life that you had left behind was more pleasing than it was. If it was pleasing, you would have never left it. But we run into a problem and we can't see a way forward. And so we shrink our field of vision to all we can see is our hurt and our pain. John has not turned to God as the answer. But John nonetheless makes a claim. No one in heaven or on earth was able to open the scroll or look inside it. Not only do we lack the power to order, order human history, we lack the ability to even see inside. You and I have no idea what is coming next. But the claim is even deeper. Not only do we lack the power, we lack the character. He said no one is worthy. How many of our leaders have to fail us before we learn the lesson of human inferiority and the problem of failed messiahs? None of us is worthy to order human history. No one is in charge. It seems like evil and malice and injustice seem to win. And part of us kind of likes the fact that no one is in charge, right? Because if the world is only darkness, then we can take a little bit of the darkness for ourselves. You are going to have to answer the question that John poses to us. You cannot afford to be agnostic on this issue. You have to choose someone as your North Star to guide you. Who is in charge of human history? Who is worthy of our allegiance to living for? Mr. Bitch tears, John hears words of comfort. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he is triumphed. He is able to open the scroll in the seven seals. John's answer to the question to his congregations and to us, why remain a Christian when things are difficult? It's quite simple. Jesus defeated death and has won for himself the power of human history. We follow Jesus when it is hard because he has triumphed. Suffering. Like I said, it can cause us to relitigate our past. But I've become convinced of this one thing. Do we have to learn to ask theological questions in the right order? For example, either the tomb was empty 2,000 years ago or it wasn't. And nothing that happens after the resurrection has the power to put Jesus back in his tomb. Anti-black racism cannot unresurrect Jesus. You see what I mean? Our current suffering can't unresurrect Christ. Either the tomb was empty and the world is different, or Jesus is dead. Let us weep 
because there is no hope. But I've become convinced that Christ reigned even when he seems far in distance. But the power of God is always as close as the proclamation, Christ is risen. That's what you need to take with you. John describes Christ as the lion and the lamb, our great warrior and champion. Our fighter, the lion, is also the lover, the lamb. He's the one who died for our sins. And that's what makes him worthy. Search if you must, but I've not found anyone more worthy of our allegiance than Jesus. The scene ends with a song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You know, there have been a lot of rulers and leaders and philosophies that have come and gone that promised to bring together the divided peoples of this world. But I've become convinced that what John says, there's one thing that brings together the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that is the king who died for us. Such that what we call racial reconciliation or unity across difference is not some added ex extra to the gospel, but a manifestation of the power of God. Jesus does what the world cannot do, which is bring us together and make us into a family. I know it's bad homiletical practice, but I'm just gonna like conclude with an allusion to a story in John's gospel. I think it's around the sixth chapter. John is, Jesus is actually speaking about his body, and he refers to his body as bread and his, his blood as drink. And the idea of eating and drinking Jesus' body and blood seems really, really weird. It seems weird to me too, right? And so a lot of people leave Jesus. And Jesus turns to Peter. He says to Peter, are you going to leave too? And Peter turns to Jesus and said, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I'm a Christian. I remain a Christian when it is hard because I believe that Jesus did have the words and actions that leads us to eternal life. And I believe in the testimony to those words and actions are recorded in what we now call our Bible. And I believe that the figure at the center of that biblical story, the lion and the lamb, will bring this unruly mess that we call human history to its proper end. Because of that, I follow him, because he's worthy. Amen. Prayer. I'm supposed to pray, right? You get, they can't play into that. Yeah. Oh, let's come on in. It's just like, it's really cool. It's like coming out of there with instruments and everything. Anyways, <laughs> it's just really nice. I'm oh, sorry. I'll pray. Father, we thank you so much um, for the privilege and the honor to know you and serve you. And I, I do not know the difficulties that um, face the varied members of this congregation. I know that life is hard and that the world and life wounds and traumatizes us. But I pray that in the midst of our pain, we recover or maintain a vision of you and your word and that we will follow you until the point where we see you and you can answer all of our questions or render them redundant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another week. 
We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.